Hey, we're going to take a little break here and talk about interstate batteries. Now, if you're like me, enjoying the great outdoors, you need gear that is as reliable as it gets. That's why I power my adventures with interstate batteries. I use interstate batteries in my boats. I use interstate batteries in my camper. Great for your truck, too. From Alaska to Montana, they're outrageously dependable. Battery is essential. With over 150,000 dealer locations, finding one is easy. For all your vehicles, land or sea, choose interstate. Head to interstatebatteries.com and find your power today. Hey guys, turkey season is in full swing right now, and if you are planning on getting after it, make sure to pick up some Meat Eater Phelps turkey calls to stuff into the old turkey vest or into your fanny pack right now. I carry a few different things. I like to use mouth calls, and I like to use pot calls. Mouth calls or diaphragms, I like them because it gives you hand-free calling, meaning when you're working a bird up close... You can have your gun on your knee, finger on the trigger, ready to roll, and still be making turkey sounds. I like pot calls because I just like pot calls. I enjoy calling with a pot call. Whatever direction you go, including a box call, which I don't personally use too much, but they're fun and great, and I started out with them. Yanni, on the other hand, one of my main turkey hunting buddies, he loves box calls. And what's funny is I'll now and then look to him and give them the look that means get out your box call and find us a turkey. So it's not that I don't like them. I just have Yanni use his. Then I don't have to carry it. Go to Phelps Game Calls. Get calls that are made in the USA and get calls that'll get them close. Find yours at phelpsgamecalls.com today. This is the Meat Eater Podcast coming at you shirtless, severely bug-bitten, and in my case, underwearless. We hunt the Meat Eater Podcast. You can't predict anything. Coming at you, uh, I'm congested with a sore throat. So I sound pretty sick. You sound off, yeah. Yeah. That time of year. Um, we're just talking. I, I want to pick up on a conversation we're just having real quick. Cal, can you can you revisit what you were talking about? John, are we, can we talk about where you live, or do you like to keep that secret? No, that's fine. You write about it. I don't write about it, but it's not like I live in an undisclosed location. Okay, I just live there. We're with the writer John Muallam, and you don't go by nature writer. You just happen to write about nature. <laughs> no, sometimes. I think that's kind of silly. Yeah, you don't like that. No. Uh, yeah. What do you what do you do? You describe yourself as a generalist. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's accurate. But that is a thing these days, right? To be a generalist? No, no, no. To like people take like nature writing classes these days, dude. Yeah, way. Yeah, yeah. Or science writer, natural Sometimes history, called- ni- natural history writers. Do you? What do you say that? No, no. Because I feel like it has a softer connotation, right? Like you're gazing at a. Valid. Yeah, I'll say that. I'll, I'll oftentimes, if I'm trying to deflect a conversation, I will say that I'm an outdoor writer. Because no one knows what that means. I just, yeah, it's like, yeah, just if I'm trying to get in and out of the subject real quick, right. I'll oftentimes throw that out there to see if that le- allows me to just move on, right? And sometimes it's people like, oh, okay, and it's over. Yeah. But the writer, the generalist, John Muellum, lives on Bainbridge Island, which is an island in Puget Sound. And hearing this, our other uh, guest, frequent 
contributor and guest Ryan Callahan shared with us his memories of Ryan fishing for chum salmon on Bainbridge. Uh, I, I want to say it was 2010, and I could be screwing this up, but we, uh, we it was actually back in the days of working with Warren Miller Entertainment, and I was in charge of shipping all of our stuff all across the country, and I also slipped in a container load of our fishing gear so we could fish wherever we were in the country, and we went out and fished the Chum Run on Bainbridge, and um, everything in this area was, was pretty economically depressed. Um, on Bainbridge. On Bainbridge, and uh, the peninsula in general, and and I was very confused as to the fishing regulations because there seemed to be an awful lot of people gut, well, we, we refer to it as basically snagging salmon and just dragging them on shore. And we were, uh, you know, out there with our fly rod, uh, fly fishing gear, just trying to catch something in the mouth. And uh, on the way out of... Uh, the creek that we'd walked down into uh, ran into some uh, uh, fish and game uh, officers and fish cops. Fish cops, and I had I had I didn't ask directly, but you know, you kind of like, hey, so suppose you, it, you observed theory, them, <laughs> uh, and these uh, officers had had basically said, like, yeah, we're aware of that. We're not really concerned about it because these folks are taking everything home and smoking them so they were they were willing to like look turn turn a blind eye that was that the impression? Said, yeah yeah, yeah. Turn, to, to, the, the to, the, to the chum thing yeah the reason i wanted you to tell that is because some reason it stuck to put in my mind two things one my brother man it winds up being so circular can i tell about the book you're working on john yeah sure John's working on a book about Alaska. <laughs> and as part of that, we got to talk about Anchorage. So I had sort of Anchorage floating around in my head. Then Cal got to talking about salmon. So having Anchorage and salmon floating around in my head, I got to thinking about something my brother was telling me that it's a derogatory term. I think like the Moonies. John, you know about the Moonies, right? Yeah. Are you asking me if that's a derogatory term? No, I'm, oh. I'm reading that it is. <laughs> okay. But can you, because you understand them better, can you explain it to me real quick? Even though it's not your groove, right? <laughs> I'd say I have a D minus grade understanding of the Moonies. The Unification the, Church. Uh, well, there you but go. But you knew that, like, you knew some of it, right? I know that, I think it's in, like, We Didn't Start the Fire. That, uh, <laughs> you know, he's the mass, uh, Shea Stadium, the Reverend Moon converted 10,000, uh, some number of thousands of, people all at the once. church all, all at once yeah and that was the sort of their arrival kinda, the beatles kind of got into it yeah they had their heyday and I if think. you see dudes in the airport who are wearing yellow gowns and have a hairstyle similar to the iroquois five nations groups right but i this is is that still going yeah, on man, I I saw this is a very like 1970 it is understanding but it's of still them. a thing okay. and i'm telling you what the reason i'm thinking about this right now is my brother was saying that the moonies in anchorage will rent buses to go fish salmon. I'm telling you. The other thing that got me thinking about, and I feel like I already brought it up once, but it's just I like I talk about this every day now, is because the the type of salmon you're talking about, a chum, is also known as a dog salmon. And it gets this name because um some people find that it's 
that its best use is to be fed to dogs. So people will catch chums and just freeze them whole to freeze the sled dogs. It's not a popular food fish, chum salmon and dog salmon. And I was recently talking about this with someone there saying that they've but the tried folks, to- was it Was it that the same as the folks on um, Nunavak? Is that the same as Same fish, yeah. They liked it, though. They love it, and I'll touch on that, too, because uh, chum salmon are coastal spawners, so they spawn close to the ocean, and they'll generally enter rivers in pretty shitty shape already. But there's an exception to this that my brother was pointing out, is there's a big run of chums in the Yukon where these chums are traveling 1,000 miles, and they'll enter the river very nice and clean and very fatty. And so there, they're pretty popular, and people will net them out in the open ocean but people know that chum salmon slash dog salmon is a real shit salmon. So they've tried to rebrand them. And for a while, they're trying to sell them as calico salmon. Because when they're up in the rivers, you ever notice they get that calico color to them? Sure, kind of The other day, we were, I think we might have talked about this. The other day, uh, Dirt Myth went into a Whole Foods and came out with a little envelope of smoked salmon. And on it, it says Kita salmon. And. I know my salmon inside and out, or thought I did. And I was like, that's not a kind of salmon. But it turns out that the Linnaean name for the chum is On Corinthians Kita. Sounds like a Bible verse. On Corinthians Kita. And uh, yeah, so Whole Foods is trying to sell chums as Kita salmon, which is just a play on their Linnaean name. Because people like get stuff in their head and they won't eat it because of, of its name. Yeah, but it still tastes good enough to sell right good enough for people to come it's back fine, and want man. more right and the chupic eskimo they don't they don't like to catch them they let the chums run in the river and spawn out and they don't like to catch them until that some bitch is washing back out to the ocean mostly dead at which point they like to catch them because their climate is so wet it's very hard to dry fish and a chum is after he's spawned out and mostly dead, he's very lean. His fat reserve is gone. At that point, you can dry him down successfully in a climate that is not appropriate for fish drying. Wow. I, I talked with the, uh, this guy, Dave, Alaska resident, who looked at me like I had three eyes because I told him how much I liked the silver salmon that we caught up at the fish shack. And he was like, you eat oh, that, coho. There's so much bullshit around fish. Like, my I brother, wouldn't touch a coho. My brother's been doing, Matt's been doing blind taste tests where he's like doing, where he's cooking pink salmon for people and coho for people. And he's finding that about 50% of people prefer the pinks. And then everybody says, oh yeah, but the real problem with pinks is they don't freeze well. They turn mushy when you freeze them. So he starts then freezing it all and doing a blind taste test with it. And then I think, <laughs> thawed, I think 60% of people preferred the pink. But it just doesn't market well. No. So John, back, back <laughs> to John. Can, can, uh, you're a general. How, how long have you been a generalist writer? Since I've been a writer, really. I've really? been writing for the New York Times Magazine for 12 years. And I think... Uh, you know, that was not long after I started writing for magazines. And I think just as a freelancer, you know, you, I, why would I say no to a good idea? Yeah. So. Did you study journalism? 
I did actually. I went to the Berkeley Journalism School. Okay. Uh, that was how I met Michael Pollan. Uh, but at that point, I kind of I didn't scope out journalism schools to go to. It was more a function of we were moving to San Francisco. My wife and I. She was going to go to grad school, and I tried to get a bunch of jobs in journalism in San Francisco and got turned down. And then I had applied to the journalism school. I had some, my dad had died recently. I had some money that could pay for the graduate degree and uh, I couldn't get any work. So then I showed up at Berkeley. I went to go visit when I got admitted and I was just like, why would I not do this? This is a, you know, it's almost like a, I'd been freelancing for a while. So I thought I could show up at this place and just keep freelancing. And now I've got the support of all these people around me. And uh, it was too good to to pass up. And that was grad school. That was grad school. Yeah, yeah. How sick are how sick of talking? How how sick are you of talking about your your book? Uh, I haven't done it in a while. Really? So, yeah. Can you talk we'll, about it for a minute. I, so, yeah. I got some questions I want to ask. Yeah, you. yeah. We'll see. But my, my I'm not going to be as up on my own book as I was. <laughs> no, I <laughs> but, understand. Uh, yeah. Well, just give me the like. Give me the give people the rundown of your book. Well, so the book's called Wild Ones. The subtitle is a sometimes dismaying, weirdly reassuring story about looking at people, looking at animals in America. <laughs> and uh, it uh, it's a book about uh, basically it's a book about conservation and endangered species. Although I didn't always want to describe it that way. Uh, and it's no, uh, why did you not want? Because it sounded too dismal. I think it shuts some a lot of people down. Right. I think the the thing I was interested in doing was writing about those issues from the perspective of someone who had no direct contact with them. Um, you know, I was living in San Francisco at the time. And as I write in the book, you know, most of my exposure to animals was, you know, watching planet earth or, uh, you know, wild America when I was a, when I was a kid. And then I had my first child and realized how much of a child's life gets flooded with animals, you know, be they on your pajamas or stuffed animals and things like this. And I just started to realize that these animals, which are real animals out there in the ecosystem, are sort of these, also these imaginative constructs that people like me are trafficking in every day. Yeah. And so the book was really about trying to reconcile those two worlds, trying to take what I thought and felt about animals and go out into the ecosystem of some of these endangered species and really think hard about you know, why is it that someone who's never going to see a mountain lion might want to get behind the cause of mountain lion conservation? What are these animals doing for us? Uh, not maybe not in the physical plane, but you know, just emotionally. Yeah. When you were when you were thinking about that, about like, you, you mentioned that your kids' pajamas and, and the way that childhood is so animal rich, at least in the imagery of it, it's rich in the imagery of animals. Yeah. In sort of the the metaphysical realm. Have you ever thought about like how is it that that how is it decided? Do you feel um, what species sort of make the cut? Yeah, because I think- African megafauna is big with is big with kids. It's big in it's like big with pajamas. It's big with stuffed animals. Um, and then there are like our uh, many of our own animals are kind of neglected in that world. Yeah, well, I think that's. That, yeah, that's a great question. And I think some of it, it just speaks to the fact that when we're putting a giraffe on our daughter's you know, onesie, it's not because of anything having to do with the giraffe itself, right? It has yeah. to do with what the giraffe represents. You know, maybe uh, it's, it's colorful, right? Maybe it's something 
that we think of as gentle. Um, and I think that there's also the exoticness of it alone is doing a lot of the work because we want to surround our kids with things that are precious, you know, and give them, uh, uh, kind of take them to another world, right? So maybe it's a giraffe or maybe it's a, a fairy, right? Or a princess, you know, something yeah, exactly, imaginary, exactly. right? Exactly. It's never a possum. No. There well, are no like possible. Sometimes pajamas. it is, but it does it often maybe won't work, right? I mean owls, I feel like owls have good PR right now. Like we we think of owls yeah, as Yeah, they being, do. Owls do yeah. make it into the stuffy realm. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Bears. Squirrels though, not so much. Not heavy on I was squirrels. just trying to think of a squirrel and the only character I can come up with is uh Rocky. From Rocky and Bullwinkle. Yeah, but kids aren't into that anymore. No, <laughs> definitely not anymore. The hedgehog has gone his brand is rising. You think? I think the hedgehog is coming into his own as a child's thing. I, I Judging really by liked, my kids' awareness of animals. I really liked how or it was eye-opening for me anyway, like the your story of the teddy bear. Oh, I was, that, was, that, was, that was the next thing I wanted to how ask How you about. address that. I thought that was fantastic. Yeah, was can like, you, yeah why the hell? Yeah, can you? Because we're on the thing with like what sort of like the, the 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 fantastic sort of representation of animals and kids stuff that you got interested in can you talk about um and i, and I trust me i will move on to like more recent things with you but can you no, talk about fine. can you talk about teddy roosevelt and the, and the bear yeah i, I mean, didn't i didn't know this oh you didn't no i i, I feel like i knew some no i didn't I, okay i knew that it had something to do with i knew that the teddy bear was teddy roosevelt but I didn't know, like, I didn't know how. Yeah. I'll do a little pitch for the book right now. I think it's worth <laughs> buying just to read your explanation of that story because I've heard that story numerous times. And I could, you know, vaguely probably tell it to you and someone would say, oh, yeah, you, you know what's nut, the nuts and bolts of it. But you added in just a few details that I didn't know where I was like, now that's fascinating. He and did the same thing in a way that. I don't agree with, with <laughs> Hornaday. Like, I know the Hornaday story very well. Yep. I would not tell it the way you told it. How would you tell it? Just different. Are we gonna? Can we skip right to that one? Can we skip to that one? Or we'll come back to the teddy bear. Now you. Now I'm, I'm scintillated. No. no. Okay. I have to sit with that discomfort. So, so t- and, tell and us and about. Interest. Tell us about. So the Roosevelt story. Yeah, I. I. I don't know if I knew that story or not. I mean, I think like you, I at least knew that teddy bears, Teddy Roosevelt. There's a relationship. Yeah, there. yeah. And the story goes. I believe it's 1903. I could have the year wrong at this point. Uh, Rose- that was the year that uh, Escoffier published the Culinary Guide. Well, there, a lot happening that year. <laughs> clearly, a big year. <laughs> um, Roosevelt goes down to Mississippi and is going to go bear hunting. And this is a, it's a, you know, the press is following him there. And long story short, they're not finding any bears. One of the last days of his hunt, his, uh, they go out. Can I stop you for a minute? Yeah. Um, what year, when was, uh, uh, you know, who's the Mississippi bear hunting writer? Faulkner. When was Faulkner like active? L- uh, later, I believe. Yeah. Okay. I don't know. Go on. Not my, not my area of expertise. I barely am expert on my own book anymore. <laughs> yeah. Well, <laughs> uh, we're, we're forcing you to revisit. Yes. I should have, I should have brushed up a little bit more. In any case, uh, all of a sudden, uh, Roosevelt is, uh, you know, he, he gives up, he goes to have lunch and, the, they're hunting with hounds they're hunting with hounds and okay. a guide you know so his guide was this sort of famous black mississippi former slave bear hunter guy who you know was a very storied figure yeah well roosevelt wouldn't cross the street without a guide i would assume so yeah, yeah. 
So this guy, suddenly he starts blowing on his bugle, uh, calling Roosevelt back out into the field because he's found a bear. And it's this kind of mangy-looking, scrawny animal that he's tied to a tree. And he's, the hounds have cornered it. He's tied it to a tree so that the president can come shoot it, have the honor of shooting it. Now, this is where the story and the truth kind of get diverged a little bit, get a little muddy. The story goes that Roosevelt found this all very unsportsmanlike and spared the bear's life. And uh, there's a famous cartoon done of this moment in a Washington newspaper where they show Roosevelt declining to shoot this very cuddly-looking bear. And the bear uh, becomes the teddy bear. That, that bear in the cartoon looks, you know, fluffy and cute and cuddly and a little vulnerable. That becomes the teddy's bear. Uh, and toy companies start making these stuffed animals, name them after the president to sort of celebrate that moment of, of mercy. The truth is, as far as I could tell, that he did not, he did refuse to shoot the bear. Instead, he asked his buddy to knife it <laughs> with a, is that and right? put it out of its misery. That part did not get carried over into the myth. Um, right, because it was supposedly like a worn down, scrawny it was, sow that just like wasn't doing very good. It was a bad looking bear. Yeah, it was a bad looking bear. So he did feel that it was unsportsmanlike, but it was more to protect his own sense of sportsmanship than the bear's life that he he declined yeah. to to shoot it. Um, so that in and of itself, I thought was interesting. The way that the story, you know, the parts of the story that we wanted to repeat and the parts that we wanted to ignore. Uh, but yeah, in any case, that was the sort of birth of the taper. And there's, there's other competing stories. I actually got a lot of, uh, emails from various people, you know, marshalling historic evidence. That, about what happened that day. About what happened that day or about the, you know, orig- linking the origin of the teddy bear to different things. And then it was, it was the, this moment with Teddy Roosevelt that kind of gave it its popularity yeah. so that it wasn't necessarily invented, uh, because of Teddy Roosevelt, but that was what made it a, a sensation got you um like the teddy bear was already a thing but it became more of a thing there's there's camps as far as i remember there's there's some some argument about that as well um but yeah but but in the book i link that to the condition of sort of actual bears in america at that time where we were sort of shifting from a perspective where they were these menacing threats to something that we had pretty much brought to its knees and now needed to show mercy yeah so exactly. since roosevelt start to, to re- that start bear, to rebuild it yeah it sort of yeah. resonates you know as of course now's the time to spare the bear's life and we can make them into this adorable thing that we give to our babies whereas you know in 1830 nobody out on the frontier is going to think of a bear as a cuddly thing that their child should should play with right it would be like giving your child a monster yeah yeah and you'd you'd said on the manufacturing kind of backstory um, and that's the thing that just like light bulb went off for me was that one manufacturer had, had a stuffed bear on the market that it was kind of fierce looking with the hump on its back and more of an actual depiction of a, or representation of a bear complete with, uh, a hook through its nose or a ring through its nose and a chain did not sell very well. Oh, Really? Yes. Uh. Yeah, well, that was the thing, is that when you look pre-Teddy Bear, there are no, you know, I haven't done it. Historians have looked Bears at toy catalogs. Cute, yeah. you, you just didn't see bear toys. And when you did, this was one of the few examples where it was clearly a, a scary toy. It was meant to frighten children. It wasn't meant to comfort them. And even when the Teddy Bear starts taking off, as often happens, uh, the kind of old guard of the toy industry is late to 
catch up. They can't get their heads around why suddenly people think bears are adorable and they're because they're displacing baby dolls. You know, this is scandalous. Right? Gotcha. Yeah, so there's yeah. a lot of uh, there's a lot of backlash. You know, as what is the world coming to that uh, these ch- we're giving these children bears? And there were actually poems, epic poems about the um, fights between teddy bears and dolls at Christmas time, you know, and that the bears were slaying the dolls and things like this. So the, the more, I think there, there was one called the passing of the dolls, which, uh, you know, it was, it was just slow to catch up to the zeitgeist. Man, do you, uh, can you explain shifting baseline syndrome? Yeah, but can we talk about possums first? Because that's the, oh, I think please, the footnote yeah. on the teddy bear story. Because you were saying that you don't often see possums. That the, possums are not widely represented in children's shit. Right. And so... Meaning mobiles, pajamas, teddy bears. Not at all. We do have a book, a children's book, um, that was sent, that, that my brother and sister-in-law sent us for our kids because it's a favorite of theirs. And it's a children's book that was written in the 60s or 70s called Possum. Now, to show kind of like changing our changing attitudes towards what's appropriate for children possum is largely about the whittling down of a large family unit of possums where there's the mother has it starts out the mother's in her den has a litter of 12 or 13 and throughout her summer's travels they are uh whittled away from snakes other things snapping turtles cars to where there's just a couple of them and then one female survives and she gets bred up by a male and goes back into the den to have more and it's just like the uh decimation of a possum family but it's like presented as a children's book do my kids love it what's the moral what do you take away from it life is fleeting just make more life is fleeting and the the natural world is at least as harrowing as ours (laughs) it's a good book so I volunteered to go last year when my kids were in first grade. You had to volunteer to go read a book, and my wife signed me up to go read a story to the kids in class. And I went and read Possum. And yeah, I didn't feel like I felt like the kids like it. I felt like the, it made the teacher uncomfortable. Well, that's interesting because that's a point you bring up in the book, and how you're saying how uh, there's some research done with how kids react to like the brutality of nature, and right, and the young kids are kind of like, yeah, like, whatever, like, protect me, and it's fine. I don't really care if other things die, if, if I can live on. And it's only as we get older that we sort of don't like that stuff anymore, like, like how nature really works. Yeah, there's, there's good research. I mean, there's this whole field of, uh, you know, human, uh, human dimensions of wildlife. They've started calling it, but this guy, Stephen Keller at Yale, I don't know if you ever come no. across his stuff. I think he, he passed away now. But, uh, yeah, in the 70s, he, he kind of led this, whole body of research to just look at how do people think about animals you know what do we actually think and the the findings are are really counterintuitive and kind of crazy i mean also the, some of the questions they asked i mean he asked them to rate animals you know do you like ladybugs more than cougars <laughs> and uh we, you know, what's smarter you know like a lobster or a dolphin you know just things like that just gut instincts yeah but one of the things that he he did was he got very interested in how children think about animals and they don't think about 
animals the way adults think about children thinking about animals. So he showed, for example, that we we want to think of children as these innocent, peaceful things, and you know that's probably why we give them animals, which we also want to think of as innocent, peaceful things. Um, but it turns out, you know, you ask a a three year old, or I don't know the exact ages, but there's an age at which you ask a small child, do you want to camp around other people or do you want to camp among animals? And they're going to say other people because they're afraid of animals, obviously, yeah, yeah. right? I mean, this is evolutionary <laughs> in, some, in some sense. But we forget all that, right? We, we put these presumptions on them. So yeah, or they want to, you know, if a, if a wolf, uh, I may be getting the, the species, it could have been a coyote, but, you know, if a, if a wolf or coyote comes and kills a farmer's chickens, what should the farmer do? Kill all the, kill all the wolves, Right, that's the answer that the kids give you, um, and and a slight few adults will give you. The same. Well, absolutely, absolutely. But I think that we think that you know, I think that for yeah. a lot of conservation-minded people, there's there's this presumption that you know the the rancher wants to kill the wolf. He just has to get back in touch with his childlike yeah. love of of all living creatures. Right. Yeah. I, what I like about not what I like about kids. An interesting thing about kids, and you see it, I see it in my own all the time, is the the hardwired things about animals that come from just our species history, like just the, the innate uh, distrust of serpents, right? There's a lot of things a kid will want to go up and grab, but there's something they just, I'm sure that there's plenty of exceptions, but I, I find that kids are generally, without having someone discuss snakes with them, are generally like repulsed by a snake. Well, I know that there's research about that. I don't necessarily remember what it shows, but I do remember reading studies where they showed a kind of laddering of fears of animals so that, you know, younger kids are afraid of snakes. When you're on the ground, when you're crawling, you know, you have a fear of snakes and maybe spiders and things like that. And then you're, but you're not afraid of predator. You know, you're not afraid of a bear. Yeah. Right? Because you're probably not going to have the opportunity to be put face to face with the bear. And how our fears, the sort of innate fears that you're talking about seem to be triggered as you as you age, which is yep. kind of, it's like a good operating on a system. Need to know, oh, right. On a need-to-know basis. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, like crawling around on the ground before you can walk, you're running into arachnids, snakes, potentially poisonous. You'll find that kids are kind of like, they know, don't put that in your That's mouth. right, and they're, not, and they're not afraid of guns, you know? No. Right. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Oh, oh you know, because you were feeling uneasy about it. Um, I want to get into William T. Horn today. But do you want to do that first, or do you want to explain? I had no, this is another thing I'd never heard. But I love it. Shifting baseline syndrome. No, I want you to talk to me about Hornaday first, okay. so I can you know tell, what I did tell, wrong. Tell the story of Hornaday. <laughs> no, then. you tell the story. <laughs> okay, so um, first off, we share and we share uh, a tendency to still use the word buffalo. Okay. There's like a type of dude, the minute you say buffalo, there's a type of dude who wants to sort of, he feels like he's engaging in a who knows most about wildlife contest where he'll like to point out that there's, that it's called a bison as though you could know as much as you know about it. Like as though I could have, for instance, written a whole book about the subject, but not picked up on the fact that the name now is bison. Like that eluded me. And so someone needs to make sure to get a hold of me because having written several hundred pages about this animal's history from the Pleistocene into the future, I had missed that fact. So there's like a, there's like a, a, a who knows mosty sort of thing about bison buffalo, but uh, I still have a great affinity for the word buffalo. I noticed that you use it. Well, Hornaday <laughs> himself encouraged people 
Am I doing a who knows more thing right now? No, no, please, please. <laughs> you know, Hornaday in one of his books, he starts out by saying, you know, the technical name is bison. Yeah. But I'm going to call it buffalo, and I believe Americans should call it buffalo because that's the popular term right now, and it shows sort of our, it gives us a greater investment in the animal to go with the populace, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's, I have never in my life registered any confusion <laughs> where I had said to someone, hey, man, did you notice all those buffalo? Like out that away, and they registered confusion where they didn't know what I was talking about. Like, no, I saw a bunch of bison. Yeah, what the you hell know, were you, you mean the at? bison nickel? Do you? Like, I've <laughs> never had someone register confusion. So Hornaday. Now, the last big at I, I never know where to begin this story. Like I said, it's, it begins in the begins in the Pleistocene, uh, but at the end of the Civil War, there's two big herds of. Buff- we're going to go with buffalo here. There's two big herds of buffalo left. or the People sort of perceived the remaining animals as being in these two large herds. Um, there's about 15 million of them. There was what they called the southern herd, which w- was sort of, you could kind of imagine it being centered around Dodge City, Kansas, and uh, down in the Texas panhandle, the southern plains or south of the railroad. And then you had the northern herd, which you could kind of imagine that being centered around um, say centered around Mile City, Montana, being up into up into Canada, south into Wyoming, and that was like the northern herd. And there was two big groups. They kind of shot. They killed the north, the southern herd off in eighteen. It kind of reached its apex of slaughter around eighteen seventy one, eighteen seventy two, and it it was about a decade later that the Northern Pacific Railroad made it to Mile City, and then they tapped out the, the the last of the northern herd. And in that, you know, they, they killed a million or two million or some number. The hide hunters did. And I think it was 1873, right? Pretty quick. Where they thought the last one? Hornaday, like, William T. Hornaday collected specimens for the Smithsonian. Was actually very influential in the Smithsonian. Wound up being very influential in the Bronx Zoo. He was a specimen collector. Hornaday knew that... Um, the animals were on the way out. He was even sending letters to people trying to find places where it might be feasible to go get some specimens and determines that the best chance would be to take the Northern Pacific Railroad into Mile City. Now, this is months, months after the hide hunters were still shooting them for commercial markets. He's out just trying to find some. And he goes up into the, the big sandy area north and a tad east of Mile City, I believe. And went up going up around the muscle shell, I think. And uh was just trying to shoot museum specimens. Um the parts of the story that I think are most interesting to me was uh um when I said that we would have told the story differently is I didn't really see one, I didn't see a ton of irony there. Which I feel that you did. Irony in the sense that he was killing animals to preserve them. Yeah, I felt like you were yeah. being a little judgmental of him. As well, though he had sort of a... Um, who's the guy in the Bible that's on his way to go kill a bunch of people and get struck blind? Saul. Yeah, he yeah. has sort of... The, you kind of tell it as though he had some sort of epiphany. You don't think he did? No. Well, maybe not in that moment. I think the irony is that he himself went on to move from taxidermy 
to conservation. I mean, I think in some ways he invented. But he a was lot already of- very he when he went out to collect his specimens. It wasn't like um, he he wasn't like he was glad about this. No, he was tortured by it. Yeah, it, but but I just got the sense like um. That you kind of felt like, oh my god, and then he's so short-sighted. Oh, I see the distinction. Yes, I appreciate. That's a that's a. I get that critique. I guess he's like. There's. I feel that he was thinking. There's nothing anyone's going to do. Absolutely. There are guys out there right now, including Teddy Roosevelt, trying to shoot him. At least we would have some specimens for future generations to even understand this thing. Right. So my question to you would be. And that's not the part. Can oh, I get to the part? Yeah, go. And then I'm going to have you take over. Definitely. There's two parts I thought were interesting. Was that, um, that he was wading through during this time, wading, almost literally wading through the carcasses and remains of the hide hunters. And two, that he had this observation that the people in Miles City, when he later wrote about this experience, that... The people in Miles City, the hide hunters, were waiting in Miles City having no idea what they had done. And that they were just waiting there for the next big herd to show up. And over time, just while waiting for the next big herd that they thought would come out of Canada, some magical thing would happen where a million more would would flow through town and they would get back to their business just kind of gradually got into being saloon keepers or ranchers and only gradually over the years realized that like, oh my God, we killed them all. That there was no comprehension of the finiteness of that resource. Like that's important to me because I feel that people oftentimes go and look at the hide hunters and find a sort of like, there was maliciousness and greed for sure, but there was also just a general like not understanding what you were doing going on. And I feel that relative to the people who were actually out doing this, Hornaday was went into it a very enlightened individual. Not just like yet another asshole laying on yet another layer of pathology onto this whole problem. Yeah, I agree. And I'm I regret that you <laughs> felt that i was lumping him in i mean if that is if that's what you took away from it then i i i can see that that but might be re- i might have been reading in heavy but now go ahead like talk well, maybe, about yeah well i agree with you i think he was incredibly enlightened relative to the to the thinking of his day and i think that is what i wanted to call attention to is what did enlightenment look like in that context right i think that a big takeaway i i had from from looking at a lot of the issues in the book was the arbitrariness with which people often decide what is possible okay. and what is impossible, right? He decided that all that was possible was to shoot a dozen buffalo and stuff them. And that was going to be how he preserved the species. Yeah. He later proved himself wrong very quickly, you know, within a 15 years by actually setting up captive breeding programs, reintroducing, you know, what is maybe one of the first, you know, reintroduction programs from a captive breeding program that he was doing at the Bronx Zoo. 
I want to tell you about an American-made success story and Black Buffalo's award-winning nicotine pouches. Black Buffalo was built by dippers with decades of smokeless tobacco use. Black Buffalo is all about the history and tradition of dip, but they understand the convenience and discretion modern-day consumers are looking for. Black Buffalo's nicotine pouches give you the versatility to consume discreetly, but keep the ritual with flavors dippers love. Mint, straight, and wintergreen, all proudly made right here in the USA. Tell them, Chili. The reason I like black buffalo pouches is, one, they're very discreet. And what I mean by that is I can throw one in and almost forget it's there. And I prefer the mint pouches. So if you're 21 or older, consume nicotine or tobacco and want to join the black buffalo herd, head over to blackbuffalo.com to learn more. You can order nicotine pouches online. They ship directly to most states or check out their store locator to purchase pouches at thousands of retail locations around the country. Black Buffalo Tobacco Alternative. Bold flavor, full pouches. Warning, this product contains nicotine. Nicotine is an addictive chemical. Black Buffalo products are intended for adults age 21 and older who are consumers of nicotine or tobacco. Hey man, after years of fine print contracts and getting ripped off by overpriced wireless providers, if you've learned anything, it's that there is always a catch. So when I heard that for a limited time, all Mint Mobile wireless plans are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan, I thought, well, what's the catch? But it turns out there isn't one. Mint Mobile's secret sauce is that they sell wireless service online. They cut out the cost of retail stores and pass those sweet savings directly to you. Ditch overpriced wireless with Mint Mobile's limited time deal and get three months of premium wireless service for 15 bucks a month. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, Go to mintmobile.com slash meat eater. That's mintmobile.com slash meat eater. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash meat eater. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 per month. New customers on first three month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Man, I'm just coming back uh, not too long ago from youth turkey season in Wisconsin. Now, last year at youth turkey season, it rained and snowed the whole time. This year at youth turkey season, it was in the 70s and even up to 80. So me and my kids are pouring it to it. And after a while, I realized they didn't drink anything all day and they haven't drank anything all day. Well, that's why it's important to get hydrated and have something you're going to like to help you, encourage you to get hydrated. Doesn't matter. Outdoor events, turkey hunting, playing sports, beach days, mountain adventures. Summer requires extraordinary hydration that's built for everyday dehydrating moments. With three times the electrolytes of the leading sports drink, plus eight vitamins and nutrients in a single stick, it's clear why Liquid IV is the number one powdered hydration brand in America. Tear, pour, live more. One stick plus 16 ounces of water hydrates better than water alone. I'll say that again. Hydrates better than water alone. Turn your ordinary water into extraordinary hydration with Liquid IV. Get 20% off your first order of Liquid IV when you go to liquidiv.com and you use code MEATEATER at checkout. That's 20% off your first order when you shop Better Hydration today using promo code MEATEATER at liquidiv.com. Yeah, and that's an interesting story that people don't know. Yeah. It got so bad that 
They later, to repopulate the West, were bringing animals from the Bronx Zoo back west by rail. Yes, and he was probably the major force in that project. So I think it's interesting that the William Temple Hornaday of 1920 could probably, could look back on the William Hornaday of 1890-something and say, man, that guy didn't really oh. even understand what was possible. The same yeah. way that, and that's how I'm looking at him, you know? Because you kind of get into a similar thing about polar bears. Not similar, but a, another thing of like, of people sort of feeling they're at the end of something and trying to prevent the end. Yeah. For a species. I think that we're quick to, I think the polar bear is a good example. I think that we're quick to, uh, when we don't know the future, fill it in with uh, negative assumptions. Right, and that that was what Hornaday is doing. I think that, I guess, I don't necessarily see the parallel of polar bears. Do you want to, do you want to frame that a little bit better? Well, yeah, that right now, it's not a perfect parallel, but the effort that, that you're talking about, like the effort that people go through on the Hudson's Bay. To move polar bears out of I see. the troubled path. Well, I just mean like um like extraordinary things we do for beleaguered species. Yeah, that was the that was what got me going on the book. Just realizing the degree to which these animals are being managed. You know, I talk about uh sort of stage managing a lot of the species, you know, that <laughs> that we're you know, a lot of endangered species are being captively bred, reintroduced into ecosystems that we're also engineering for, you know, so that they can thrive in them. So all of this work is being done on their behalf. Every part of the equation is being micromanaged. Um, the example with the sea turtles. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that was a story Barricades. I did for the Times Magazine when yeah. during the Gulf oil spill, you know, I went down and and uh, they were digging up, I don't know if you guys remember, this is a big news story at the time, but the, the government was digging up sea turtle nests on the Gulf Coast, shipping the egg, driving the eggs in a FedEx truck to the east coast of Florida, to the Atlantic coast of Florida, and reburying <laughs> the, uh, I don't know if they were reburying them or just letting them hatch and putting the hatchlings out in the water because they didn't want the turtle hatchlings of the Gulf Coast to be swimming directly into the spill. And I went down to Alabama and hung out with this uh, uh, group of mostly retired folks who had been, for years, had just been walking around the beach barricading the nests so that people wouldn't trample them or you know, accidentally dig them up to protect them. And then what they would do is, uh, when they were getting close to hatching, they would just camp out on the beach around the nests. And when the turtle hatchlings started to boil out of the sand since they wouldn't want them going away from the water toward the artificial light because their, their instinct is to go toward the light. Uh, and they often get stranded in parking lots and things. They go in the wrong direction. They, they wanted them going to the ocean. So they would sit around the nest. When the hatchlings start coming up, they would dig a trench to funnel them toward the ocean so they had no other options <laughs> really? to go right into the ocean. And then they would stand with tarps around the trench to block the light so that Basically, they're just escorting them. I mean, they could have just dug them up and carried them out. And sometimes they had to do that, too. But they would stay up all night waiting for these hatchlings. I mean, that is people's lives. <laughs> An inordinate amount of their time is being spent to get this, these nests. And during the spill, it turns out they were the, the experts 
that the the government had to call on. They were the people with the relevant experience who could go dig up these. It was sort of like this Armageddon situation, you know, like the movie yep. Armageddon. And if you're a like, retiree, that's the phone call of your lifetime. Oh, they were so psyched, you know, and they were and they were also. Uh, I don't want to say this with, with a, a tone of, uh, of you know, I want to judge them harshly for it. I thought it was amazing. They were. Uh, Let's just say they were they were feeling good about themselves. You know, they were telling people what to do. They knew they were the experts. This was their moment, and they weren't going to let anyone fuck with their turtles. And it was great to see. You know, it was great to see someone who just had this sort of zany hobby, whose you know kids and nephews and nieces probably teased them about. You know, you get up every morning and you walk on the beach looking for turtle tracks. You know, and uh, you know these people they had turtles painted on their their cars and turtles hanging from their uh, rear view mirrors and their whole life had been about sea turtles. And now they were stepping in to save this, uh, this generation of turtles. It was amazing. Yeah. We like in the hunting world, you're surrounded by that um, all the time with the way that people like people who kind of pulled off the Turkey reintroduction and recovery. And even then, so I know people who've like devoted their lives who've devoted their, their life to elk or people who've devoted their life to quail or people who've devoted their life to turkey. And there I'm always like, I just understand it, right? Because I see like what it was born of, but it is. I look at the turtle thing and I'm like, man, and those people will do it without even the promise of having turtle soup. It's not even part of the equation right, for them. Right, yeah. And so what is that value? I mean, that's, what I'm, that's exactly what I'm interested in is when the value of the animals gets unmoored from any... Yeah, practical anything. Use. Um, it's just it emotional. A guy would be like, "Man, I've always just dreamed of hunting turkeys, so I got real involved in bringing turkeys back to my state." But for a turtle guy, it's just that turtle hits the water, and you will never lay eyes on it again. And I agree with you. The turkey guy, on an intuitive level, makes a lot more sense to me, and I I think that's why I'm drawn to figure out the other side of it, the other part of it. Okay, I was going to have you... I can't decide now because I still want you to talk about shifting baseline syndrome. And con, it, it, Oh, the term that you've been talking about... And also I want to talk about... I want you to touch on conservation reliance of species. But I also want to talk about pedals the bear from your perspective. <laughs> Is there, do you see a good order to do that? Uh, well, conservation reliance, I think we can get through pretty quickly. I mean, that's basically just what I was talking about. That's the, the technical term for the idea that it's going to take intensive management on the part of humans to keep endangered species alive. So there was a study that came out that introduced this term, I believe in early 2000s, uh, by a guy named Mike Scott, who at the time was maybe with Fish and Wildlife, some federal agency. And uh, he came up with this term conservation reliance because they looked at every species on the endangered species list and they looked at what you know, tried to forecast what outcomes, you know, are possible. And basically realized that some huge percentage, something in the 80s, I believe, just 80-something percent of these species are going to be reliant on human intervention for the foreseeable future. And that doesn't mean that, you know, it could just be getting weeds out of their ecosystem so that the whatever, you know, plant they need is there. Um, Or it could be a, you know, much more intensive captive breeding type of thing. But that the the equilibrium in which these species evolved has been disrupted to such an extent that we're always going to be like I'm saying stage managing 
Yeah, like it would be fair to say you could probably you could probably name a bunch because your research, but the California condor lives in a state of conservation reliance. Absolutely, and that that goes from everything from you know, pr- uh, I believe they're still captively breeding them, but they're definitely. I mean, they teach them not to perch on power lines. You know, they have to train them to live in the world where they have to live now. Yeah. Um, exactly. Can you think of other ones? Sure. I mean, the one I write about in the book is this butterfly species, the Lang's metal mark, where it's uh, you know been winnowed down to such an extent where they go out, they collect butterfly eggs off leaves of its host plant. They take it to a lab in Southern California. This is outside San Francisco. They take it to a, cl- a lab in Southern California. They breed them there. They let the, the eggs hatch. They, and then they put the larva back on the plant. Then they go back, collect some of the live butterflies, bring them back to the lab, have them uh, breed, and do the whole process all over again. Meanwhile, they've got a full-time Fish and Wildlife Service employer, at least did it as of a couple of years ago, I know, whose job was to groom the ecosystem. He was basically like a caretaker for the butterfly's property. And he was doing all sorts of invasive controls to make sure that that host plant could get a footing on the sand dunes where it lives. So that's a pretty extreme case, I think, where every part of what used to be a natural process has to be done by hand, by a human hand. Yeah, there's a certain type of person who looks at that and they feel like an anger toward the species. Yeah. I think there's part of that in me. Really? Honestly. I mean, I think that's why I was so wrapped up in this because I couldn't see my way through to any you know, discernible, clear, defensible position. Yeah. I, I, I've always lived... Or, I just live with this sense that it's deeply immoral to... Um, to allow species to go extinct because of our because of our influ- our influences on the environment to be like to, to be like there, there's parts of creation whether you take that in a religious way or in just like an ecological way that there's parts of creation that we've decided are um, that we can just throw away or allow to be thrown away because we don't want to be inconvenienced by it. I feel like if we've arrived at, if we're there, if we've arrived at that point, we really don't have any claim to any kind of moral legitimacy anymore. Do you think we're not at that point? No, I think a lot of people are at that point. Yeah. The person I run into on this. I mean, uh, yeah, plenty of people are at that point. And I think they don't have any kind of claim to moral legitimacy either. Is, uh, we start talking about, well, like a migration corridor, you know, yeah, it'd be great if you didn't graze that down to nothing. It'd be better if you uh, had, you know, a clean single top strand with no barbs on it, on your barbed wire fence. Be better if there was no barbed wire fence. Um, And you always hit this point where, well, where does it end? Yeah. You know, and that's the person on these, when we get into these arguments and talks on this subject, that's the person always shows up. Like, yeah, but how far are you going to take this? Yeah, the where does it Come end? on. Well, like, I can't, I put, you know, dim it, or I uh, I had the uh, no light ordinance on my beachfront house, okay? I did that. But, you know, you're, now you're asking me to, you know, not, you know, use my back porch at all, or, you know, where does it end? 
Yeah, that's the thing that comes up. People are like, let's run this out to the point where everyone will see the absurdity of it. Yes, exactly. And yeah. And there's another thing about it, like in the case of the condor, there's a there's an interesting argument to be made that the condor could be considered to be one of the Pleistocene extinctions. It just took a long time to arrive there. So at the the Pleistocene Holocene transition when we lost mastodons, woolly mammoths, giant ground sloths, short-faced bears. We lost all these animals. Um, and a, a, a sort of slow... I think you should fill us in on what, what did it, because it wasn't human-caused. Right? It's mysterious. It's mysterious. Some, the- combination of, some combination of climate change at the, at the end of the last ice age, some combination of climate change influence from uh, successional waves of humans coming from Asia, you know, Ice Age hunters, um, possibly disease issues. No one really understands. Possibly there's this idea that never really dies, but never really gets going of um, some like cosmic disturbances that cause the extinctions. But you have this big ass bird that's a feeds on carrion, and whether you know lead ammo or not, or power lines or not, you'd have just seen that bird fizzle out the way that many, many dozens of other species fizzled out at the end of the Pleistocene. Well, because they were it just took a long time to happen. They were all over the, I believe, all over the continent, right? And they just the last remaining ones just happened to be the ones at the very western edge. I mean, they, were, yeah, they, they found country. a way to begin, they found a way to kind of exploit marine mam- dead marine mammals and that people will be like, there's nothing you were going to do or it was just going to happen. The same way if we had caught the tail end of some other, the end of the mammoths and we grappled to be like, wow, why, what did we do? When maybe it was just going to happen. Yeah, but how do you guys answer that? Because it's like, okay, well, who gets to choose? Are you Steve Ranella or John? Or I am not going to be like, the guy that signs the paper that says let it go away. Okay. For all of humanity, we just stop right now. No, I, I, will not, I will not be the guy that says it. All right. So I, I still want to touch on pebbles. I want to touch on giant sequoias and the Karl Marx tree. And I want to talk about uh, pedal. I already said pedals. Shifting baseline syndrome. Right. Because it's like an important part of your book. Yeah, I think at this point, it's an important part of my life. I think it really has colored the way I think about a lot of things. Uh, shifting baseline syndrome. I want to interrupt you to say this is all in, everything we've covered mostly so far is in, like plug your book again. Oh, it's in Wild Ones. Yeah, yeah we're, going, we're going through the book. John Mualem's yeah. Wild Ones. <laughs> Still available. Still available. Uh, shifting baseline syndrome. So yeah, this is the idea I stumbled on when uh, I was actually writing about that that butterfly. And I find that it's something that gives a name to a lot of phenomenon that we come across all the time. Shifting baseline syndrome was, the, the phrase was coined by a marine fisheries scientist named Daniel Pauly uh, in the 90s. And what he was, what he realized was that people in his field we're coming in and, and spending their careers documenting the crash of different 
uh, fish species. So they were looking at everything happening in the ocean from the time they started their career to the time they retired. More, I mean, obviously they knew more than that, but this was their focus. And then the next generation of academics would come along, or scientists would come along, and they would start basically with a, a clean slate intellectually. So they would start documenting the decline of fish species further. But because we're always looking at the world through this window of, of the present, we never really see that... I should start that all over again. I'm not doing this idea very no, much No, I'm justice. tracking. I'm okay. tracking, but I'm tracking right. because I already understand yes. it and have well, thought about it. I just don't know if there's a word Let's do it, it again. Shifting baseline syndrome was... A, a phrase coined by Daniel Pauly, who's a, a fisheries scientist. Don't get discouraged, man. It I'm not discouraged. Good. It's a discouraging uh, idea, I guess. The idea, basically, that uh, he was noticing that people were documenting the crash of marine species, but no one was really putting together that the crashes that they were, or the declines that they were documenting within their own careers were actually just slivers on a much longer graph of time, so that uh, each time a new generation would come along, they would accept the condition in which they were looking at the ocean as normal, and they would document the decline relative to that normal. But if you zoom out and you look at, you know, instead of a 50-year span or, or a 30-year span, you look at a 100-year span or 200-year span, you see a much steeper decline. So that these little line graphs that we're drawing and, and freaking out about are actually just slivers of this much, much bigger graph. Um, and I think that that... There's another term for pretty much the same phenomenon. Uh, Peter Kahn is a psychologist at the University of Washington. Around the same time, he coined the term environmental generational amnesia, which I actually think is oh, a, yeah. a cooler term. Uh, didn't catch on quite as much. but uh, And that was the more widely applicable. So he would go to kids in Houston, and he would say, you know, who live among oil refineries, and he would say, do you think your neighborhood's polluted? They say no, right? <laughs> Uh, because that's the, you know, we just kind of assume it's normal. Yeah. We, whatever we inherit, it's normal. Uh, and so we watch all this stuff happen and, you know, people get old and grumpy and talk about how it used to be. But of course, when they were kids, there were grumpy people, you know, who were old at that time talking about how it used to be a generation before that. Yeah. And I think this is like a really important thing to recognize. And then having recognized it, I don't know what the fuck to do about it. Because it, it just screws me up. I, I still cannot, what do you do with this information? What do you do with the information that your perspective is sort of inherently flawed? I, I, I struggle with it all the time. And reading that term, like I've been, the, the, my mom still lives in the house where I was brought up and, you know, born. And, on, and it's on a lake. So I've been a very careful observer of that lake for 43 years. And yes, the Eden... Eden for that lake is when I was five and first was able to take it in. But I do oftentimes wonder about like the time machine thing. It wouldn't be my first pick, but if I had 10 picks with a time machine, one stop would be that lake in pre-human times. To go like, so what is the actual baseline? Right. But you're right. I, in my mind, it was like that lake's history began when I first gazed upon it. And everything since then, and, and now my child, my boy, who 
fishes that lake a, a few days every year will someday have it be that that moment when I first took them there to fish bluegills was Eden and everything will just be whatever has slipped from that point. And my story is about what it was like. He won't, he'll be able to understand it, but it won't factor into his own monitoring of its decline. Right. And which it'll be that that lake was born on that day. And which baseline do you attach the legitimacy to? Because you could dial up your time machine and go back to whatever year. I tend to think of things as being, for me, just because it allows me to like begin to sort of put my arms around things. I tend to, when thinking about wildlife in America, the arrival of human beings tends to be where I... Where this for me, that's where the story begins. And I agree with you. I think instinctually that makes a lot of sense. But well, no, because some people will be in Wyoming and they'll be thinking about when it was the great inland sea whose shorelines were populated by dinosaurs. But I don't care about that. I automatically go to what was it like 14,000 years ago for whatever reason, just because in our effort to understand and make sense of and begin having a conversation, that's just where I jump. Right. But that basically invalidates our presence here. That says that our goal as responsible citizens of these ecosystems is to have zero, is to be as if we were not here. That they would be repopulated with mammoths, yes. And that is impossible. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think you're setting yourself up for failure yeah. there. But, but yeah, it's, it's, a, it's, a, and it's just and where it, my mind goes. And it, it's a problem thinking ahead too, right? It's a problem thinking, you know, I use the example in the book, is the bald eagle recovery, right? You know, that when, when the bald eagles were delisted as endangered species, there was a lot of triumphant talk about how many you know, bald eagles there were. Of course, it was just a, a minor fraction of the number of bald eagles that there were, you know, at, well, for example, at your baseline, right? Yeah. Um, and so when do you know how or many bald when, eagles Or when are Benjamin there? Franklin was criticizing them as being scummy. Exactly. So how many are there supposed to be, right? How do we know if we've succeeded and how do we know if we've failed if we can't agree on what the legitimate you know, what the should be of the equation is. I don't know. But you can find out because we're having this conversation all the time. Right now we're engaged in it around the idea of wolves and grizzlies in the lower 48. How many? Like what could, like the, what is the most reasonable picture of recovery based on the fact that there's this thing we have to deal with called reality? Well, how many do we want? That's the question yeah. I like to ask, you know, and I think that's a much more complicated question. I mean, a lot of the conservation, I mean, there's a lot of cases of species that have rebounded only to be greeted by distaste. Yes. Or, or take, oh, take yeah. the case. Oh, go ahead. No, I was just going to say like, <laughs> yeah, man, it quickly swings that pendulum yeah. to where like, oh, Canada geese, Canada geese, is, you know, save them, Great. save them. And now like you can't find a person probably like walking in our country that can even remember when people were trying to save that bird. Yeah, right? that's a good point. Things that we've recovered, like there are states who are doing active reintroductions of deer, white-tailed deer. So now the new villain is the aggressive turkey. Yeah, I read that. Article. Keeping people from getting out of their cars, <laughs> right? These all, and meanwhile, we had to go through extraordinary measures to recover the species. And now it's like these dumb, violent birds preventing me from getting in and out of my car. 
And now you got the de-extinction people. You know the. Oh yeah, no. And yeah. They want to bring back passenger pigeons. Well, I don't think American civilization is ready for swarms of passenger pigeons that are going to block out the sun. Yeah, and can you refer our listeners back to our episode? Can you look up what episode we did with the yes. ancient DNA expert, Dr. Beth Shapiro, Dr. about de-extinction? Sure can. Just be good. Both the goose and, and the turkey, I mean, how there's significant portion, portions of our population that if you were to mention that species to them, they'd be like, oh, the goddamn things that shit all over my lawn, yeah. scratch up my car. They have no reference of those animals anywhere other than that. It's like, I live on a golf course, and I have to step in their poop every day. I hate those things. Yeah, very short-sighted. Yeah. Or, yeah, looking at it from the perspective of your own lifetime. Did you find the number? 75. Episode 75, we, we explored de-extinction de- with a professor. And we uh, covered just that topic about what it would really be like to have, you know, billions of passenger pigeons back again and why she thinks you don't really need to worry about it too much um but here's another version of the here's another version of how much is too many and what does recovery look like so we've got it now we're up to over a half million buffalo and so people say like what does recovery look like and they'll say well there's two types of recovery there's dealing with its genetic extinction which we've dealt with it's no longer at risk of genetic extinction, but it's, there's still a risk of ecological extinction because of the half million that we have, 94% are privately owned, are managed as livestock. So there's no risk of losing the animal, but what we've lost is the, the, the species interaction, the species native interaction with the landscape. So we haven't, rec- like that won't, maybe won't be recovered. Or we'll recover it in just small little spots where we can kind of replicate what the animal was beyond just its its genetic makeup, but how it influenced and was influenced and was influenced by the landscape on which it lived. Um, but yeah, it's going on all the time. Um, what should the world look like? I don't know. I mean, I think that that gets back to your what you were saying before about you know. It, when do we give up on something because it's inconvenient? Well, the reason why it's often perceived as inconvenient is because the, the context in which it existed is gone. You know, I mean, I think it, the questions start to parallel like palliative care <laughs> questions, you know, end no, of life point, man. kind of questions, you know, when, what is the, it's not necessarily quality of life. I'm not going to get into the emotional well-being of the animals, but, you know, in some sense, these, these critters become invasive species in their own ecosystem. You know, they're just not locked in in the way that they used to be. And I don't have an answer for that. I don't know when it's not worth preserving them. Yeah, it's like, preser- it's like keeping a person alive in a vegetative state. Yeah. What, what is your prime example of a native species becoming an invasive species in their own eco- ecosystem? Well, I think that, that butterfly goes, goes a long way to explain. I mean, this was a, a sand dune ecosystem about an hour east of san francisco called the antioch dunes that very quickly became uh leveled after the i think the big burst was after the 1906 earthquake in san francisco when they were mining the dunes for bricks but just wave after wave of exploitation of that resource until literally you know you could see talking about shifting baselines you could actually see you know the the baseline of the dune (laughs) you know lowering 
um, when you look at when you look at photographs. Um, and it, it stopped being a dune ecosystem. The sand stopped shifting. Uh, you know, trees took root. Uh, it became a, a you know a savanna. I mean, it became like a you know there's oak trees growing there now. So to come back and say we want to preserve this butterfly that is used to living on a you know a particular kind of plant that grows in a sand dune ecosystem, you got to do a lot of work to the ground before you start putting the butterfly back. And I mean, I think the condor in some sense too, as you're talking about, like the you know the entire uh, matrix of circumstances that allowed it to evolve. It's just not really there. It's just hanging on to this because it learned to probably eat, you know, marine mammal carcasses and things like that. So it adapted a little bit, but it's not behaving the same way that a condor would have yeah. in the past. And, you know, I'm not judging it. No, for but it's that. Cond- something about its condorness is gone. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't know. I mean, I just think the the point I got to. You know, basically, and, and I'm surprised that some people find this discouraging because I find it really encouraging. Is the point I got to is just a, a kind of deep acceptance of the fact that these questions are not going to be resolved. That being uh, as powerful a species as we are and trying to exist in a world that's as complicated as it is is going to mean that we're creating all this friction around us all the time. And it's kind of amazing we feel somewhat compelled to even be responsible to the rest of the planet. And to try to minimize that that friction, or at least you know put back together whatever we're breaking as we kind of trundle around. So I don't have any fantasy, you know, th- this whole idea that there's some hope that if we just all start, you know, stop drinking bottled water or whatever it is, or you know, driving <laughs> Priuses, that suddenly the Earth is going to be restored to this beautiful equilibrium, and we won't have to think about these things anymore. I think is is sort of ludicrous, and I think that what we need to be doing is figuring out how to exist in this tussle of um, priorities and clumsiness, and uh, just kind of hashing it out. It's just like a it's like a brawl, you know. We just got to be in there swinging away, trying to fix all this stuff because we're going to be constantly destroying it all the time, too. There's a quote you have for another piece you wrote that I wrote down: "The future is always somebody else's problem. It will very likely feel as authentic." And only as horrific as our moment does to us. <laughs> yeah, I think I, said, like- <laughs> I think I actually said the future is always somebody else's present, which is the shifting baselines thing. Is that? Oh, what did I say? Problem? problem oh, I have yeah. it right here. The yeah. future is always somebody else's present. Yeah, it will very likely. Fe- I'm sorry. It will very likely feel as authentic and only as horrific as our moment does to us. Yeah, they they won't have a new. People won't recalibrate to experience a other level of horrific. I hope not. I mean, that's. I, I think even that's in, the only hope. Even right? in Cormac McCarthy's The Road, right? There's only so much anxiety to go around, right? I don't think you find a new way to achieve a new level of anxiety. It's normal. It's your normal. <laughs> it's just, right? No, and I think the perfect example of it is going back to Hornaday. Is you're saying how he was lamenting that. All the kids were playing indoors. None of the kids were getting outside enough. And what what is our generation of with young kids lament about right now? You know, a hundred years later, it's the same thing, right? Yeah, I think we're if anything, maybe we're less concerned than he was. You know, he was driven nuts by that. Yeah, I'm, I'm just living my life. I wish my kids played outside more, but I'm not <laughs> writing writing screeds about it. You Have know? you read his book of going up into BC? No, hunting, hunting mountain goats, grizzlies, and bighorns. That was Hornaday, right? You sent me that book. 
Yeah, Campfires in the Rockies. Campfires right? in oh, the Northern no, Rockies. Yeah, no, I've never read that one. You haven't read it? No. Yeah, he's a big game hunter. Yeah. He liked it. Oh, yeah. Okay, now, how uh, how big, explain to me how big a sequoia is. It's fucking big. Yeah. <laughs> I just read your piece about sequoias, and you're, it's funny because in the beginning, our guest, John Muallam, is saying, like, I suppose I need to talk about how like big they are. Yeah, that's. I just figured <laughs> everyone talks about how big they are, but no, let's focus on how big they are. <laughs> I figured I'm going to sit down and write a piece about sequoias. I can't really try to be cute about it. We're going to deal with this head on and just get it out of the way because you really need to, even if you're not going to understand the the feeling of being next to something big that I'm telling you, you at least need to remember that it's all it's a preoccupation. Yeah, <laughs> we, we can't gloss over it. But you, you, <laughs> first off, um, before we talk about how big they are, how did it come to be that you did a piece about visiting the Sequoias? So the, the, because it wasn't like a doom and gloom piece. No. So the Times Magazine, uh, does a travel issue a couple times a year. Yeah. A couple times a year. And this one, this was about a year ago. Their idea was to just ask writers to go somewhere you've always wanted to go in the U.S. Um, that you'd never been before. And, uh, I mean, there was a lot of places I wanted to go and partially it was dictated by the timing. I didn't have a lot of time, so I needed to go somewhere relatively close. Um, but I'd always, I'd always wanted to go. I'd spend some time in the Redwoods, but something about the Sequoias, and I think honestly it might just be the name. It might've just been the exoticness of the name, you know, Redwood, you know, it's all right there. And Sequoia, there's a little more mystery to it. Um, it leaves something something to the imagination. It sure does. It feels a little more magical. Um, yeah, I've just always been fascinated by them. So I just wanted to see what would happen if I went and stood around some really big trees. Yeah, it's a cool piece. And in it, you're trying to you're struggling with how big they are. And one of the ways you express it would be that if you filled the the biggest one is what's his name? I know that they used to call it the Karl Marx General tree. General Sherman. Tree. That it went from the Karl Marx tree to the General Sherman tree. Well, is that tree. right? Is that the General Sherman tree? I think, yeah, Sherm. They call it Sherm for short. Yeah. Yeah. That if you filled that thing with water, you're saying so it's the largest tree on earth by volume. And if you filled it with water, a person could draw a bath from that reservoir of water every single day for 27 years before exhausting the water. Yeah. Or that a limb fell off it. So a branch off a coniferous tree, seven feet thick, 150 feet long. And you point out that that would be one of the biggest, that limb would be one of the biggest trees east of the Mississippi. West of the Mississippi. No, east of the Mississippi. Sorry. Yes. Big damn trees. Yeah. That was the kind of thing that drove it home for me. Uh, Yeah. I've never heard that one. A branch that's seven feet across. Yeah. Yeah, that one gets repeated a lot around the park. Does sound? Yeah. What's funny is you talk in the piece about how you wanted to take a photo. How frustrating is like you cannot take a photo of the tree because people looking at it will just they'll shrink the other trees. So the trees that it's towering above, they'll be like, "Oh, those are shrubs," and your head will always make the tree make sense. 
And John's talking about how he finally gets a picture that he really likes and sends it to a friend, and she mistakes it for a tree in his backyard. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it was amazing. Not everything I did to try to get a good picture of these trees backfired. Like I had at one point, I had someone take a picture of me on a on a ridge overlooking five or six sequoias, right? And so the, all that's in the picture is me and these sequoias. And when you look at it, you think that I'm standing in front of a few regular-sized trees that are right behind me instead of like 200 feet behind me. Yeah. Because your eye just brings them right up. It just finds a way to make them seem normal. Like it doesn't want to deal with it. It just can't <laughs> deal with it. It just can't deal with it. But when you get up to it, do you feel it then? Yes. Yeah, I really did. I'm not a, as we discussed, I'm not a nature writer <laughs> in the in the sense of someone who wants to go stand next to a tree and feel things. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it's hard to say. I was there to go see what it's like, see what it feels like to be next to a tree. So I was, you know, turned on a little bit more than if I was just walking around. But I, I cannot see how that, those trees can disappoint you if you go to see them. Um, I mean, if you do, I think there's something dead inside in you. <laughs> yeah. Can you touch real quick on, uh, as well as you remember it, can you touch real quick on uh, the sort of history with this utopian colony? Yeah. Yeah. And how they wanted to finance their colony. Yeah. So there was a Kiowa colony. So the the history of the park was really interesting in the sense that, uh, you know, we think about these, um, well, there's a couple things. First is that, People had always been trying to cut down the sequoias from the time that you know white people discovered them. They thought it's a bonanza, right? You, these huge trees, and the problem with sequoias is you can't really cut them down very well because they splinter. <laughs> so they would there were a lot of trees that were cut down, and then just basically you could like use when it them tips, it starts to crack. Yeah, well, when, yeah. when it hits the ground, it just it's not good lumber. I got you. So a lot of people wasted a lot of trees trying to figure out how to use them as resources and just couldn't figure it out. Um, but they kept trying. So in any case, this, uh, there was a, a federal act that was encouraging people, the Timber and Stone Act, I believe it was called, that was encouraging people to go out west and, and uh, you know, log trees. And this group of people in San Francisco who were socialists, utopian socialists, decided that they were going to uh, team up and buy a lot of land inside what is now Sequoia National Park. Um, and this was going to be how they were going to fund their utopia was by cutting down trees. And I don't know how, do you, do you remember how long they were, the, first they had to build a road. Well, an interesting thing about yeah. it was because they all lived together. Yeah, they were They, were they all had the society. same address and they found that corporations would do bogus stuff with to do land claims. So their land claim got messed up because they thought it was just a corporation using fictitious names. Right. Yeah. Well, so that, that's the end of the story. The, the whole beginning of the story is that they actually got the land and started and building a road. Started building a road. They spent a year or something cutting this road, you know, straight uphill for miles to get to the biggest stand of sequoias to chop them down. To chop them down. And this whole time, so- socialists. There's a there's a kind of a clerical error. You know, cl- there's a bu- bureaucratic wrangling over their claims because, as you say, there was that sort of uh, raise a red flag that they all had the same address. And at this time, corporations they would just go into saloons and they'd you know buy someone a beer to go down to the to the office and and make a claim on a piece of land so that they could buy it back from them. Uh, so the fact that all these utopians were you all lived or using the same address uh, made them seem like a corporation. So in any case, this is all playing out. They just are building their roads on good faith that eventually the government's going to see 
that this is an honest mistake and, and validate their claim. But in the meantime, it was actually partially due to the railroad interests who wanted to build the railroad along a certain route. Uh, they built, so they, they founded Sequoia, the federal government founded Sequoia National Park and stripped them of their claim, which they never officially had in the first place. So they had improved all this land. So, you know, yeah, this big road. government coming in and screwing the socialists. Screwing the socialists <laughs> at the behest of large corporations in order to create a national park and preserve this kind of national natural treasure. How far we've come. It's all scrambled up. How far really, we've come. It's really hard to see the... You know, the, the typical good guys and bad guys in that, in that story. <laughs> and they, but they recognized the tree as they, they knew like the biggest one, Sherman. They recognized it as like, man, now there's a tree. Yeah. They, they named it, it the Karl Marx tree. They did. They used to have picnics under it. And they were, fig- they would have cut it down, you think? I don't know. I mean, they had a lot of trees to go through. I don't, I mean, I also wonder if they would have maybe figured out pretty quickly that these trees were not going to really, you know, no one had figured out a way to basically monetize these trees. Um, and they were just optimistic enough to figure that they could do it, I guess. Yeah. Did you know Rocket Money can cancel a subscription for you? They'll even alert you when there's been an increase in a subscription price and negotiate rates for you. I can see my subscriptions in one place, and if I see something I don't want, Rocket Money can help me cancel it with just a few taps. You wouldn't believe how many people are paying for subscriptions they don't use. This happened to me. It's annoying. This helps you find it out and get rid of it. Well, Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions and monitors your spending and helps lower your bills so you can grow your savings. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's features. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash meat eater. That's rocketmoney.com slash meat eater. Rocketmoney.com slash meat eater. I want to tell you about an American-made success story and Black Buffalo's award-winning nicotine pouches. Black Buffalo was built by dippers with decades of smokeless tobacco use. Black Buffalo is all about the history and tradition of dip, but they understand the convenience and discretion modern-day consumers are looking for. Black Buffalo's nicotine pouches give you the versatility to consume discreetly, but keep the ritual with flavors dippers love. Mint, straight, and wintergreen, all proudly made right here in the USA. Tell them, Chili. The reason I like black buffalo pouches is, one, they're very discreet. And what I mean by that is I can throw one in and almost forget it's there. And I prefer the mint pouches. So if you're 21 or older, consume nicotine or tobacco and want to join the black buffalo herd, head over to blackbuffalo.com to learn more. You can order nicotine pouches online. They ship directly to most states or check out their store locator to purchase pouches at thousands of retail locations around the country. Black Buffalo Tobacco Alternative. Bold flavor, full pouches. Warning, this product contains nicotine. Nicotine is an addictive chemical. Black Buffalo products are intended for adults age 21 and older who are consumers of nicotine or tobacco. Looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited 
photos. These things are super cool as a gift, especially if you got mom, aunt, grandma, whoever, and you want to like keep them up to speed on what the family's up to. Okay, it's easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app, and if you're giving an Aura as a gift. You can even personalize the frame with pre-loaded photos and memories. Named the best digital picture frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah's favorite things, Aura frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. You can share photos to the frame instantly from anywhere, meaning you share videos, photos from any device, and they will instantly appear on the frame wherever it is in the world. There's no memory card required right now. Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code MEATEATER at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. How lucky for the uh, Sequoias that uh, they're not good for lumber. That's right. It's a touching article, but I liked it. Thanks. Um, And then... I still want to come back around and talk about your piece about Pedals the Bear. Yeah. Pedals the Bear? Should I give a little synopsis here? Yeah, because you were asked to write about influential people. Right. So the influential (laughs) people of what year? This was last year. So the magazine also does the lives they lived. It's an issue. It's like obituaries. It's obituaries. (laughs) It's every year between Christmas and New Year's where there's 20, 25 remarkable people that have died who each get a short essay about them and the idea i think is you know you've got your big you know your david bowie's people like that you know there'll be definitely some of those but i think the bulk of the issue is always uh devoted to people who you may not have heard of but you know they've had this profound impact in one way or another and so it's a it's a good time to kind of look back on the people who maybe didn't get their due either in life or in the year in which they died okay so i'm doing one right now about a sociologist that no one's ever heard of um but last year i did one about a bear which uh, I think was maybe the only the second time there'd been an animal. I can't say it was the first. Time. They'd also done one about the, remember when the chimp tore off the woman's face? Yep. Mm. Yeah. So the chimp got one. Oh, oh yeah. that was nice. Yeah. Um, but yeah, Petals the Bear was. Oh, like, earlier, speaking of chimps, yeah. earlier I was trying to think of ways to explain Hornaday. And I was thinking, what if Jane Goodall had gone out to shoot chimps <laughs> as a way of having a couple stuffed ones laying around? This would be a very different story. Yeah, I think that's a good way to think about it. I think that's exactly what it must have been like. Instead, she's like, you know what? I'm going to hold off on that and try to do. Um, but no, but she was just studying them. Anyways, I didn't yeah. mention it because I didn't think it was a good analogy, but it did cross my mind. But yeah, pebbles. Petals. 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 Yeah, pebbles. Petals. Yeah, it's show some respect. <laughs> For the dead. Right. Yeah, Petals was a, a, black, a, a black bear in New Jersey, northern New Jersey, which is also where I grew up. And uh, he had some kind of injury or deformity on his paws. And uh, so he had learned to walk upright. So he spent a lot of time just cruising around through suburban neighborhoods on his hind legs. Had an affinity for bird feeders. Yeah, I'm sure. And garbage cans. And so people would, you know, there were a lot of videos of pedals on the internet because it was crazy looking. You know, I mean, it looked, people would always describe it as looking like a man in a bear suit. Yeah, he would go quite a few steps. He was good. Yeah. Yeah, he could move. He could move. And so they called him Petals. Uh, and then he was shot by a bow hunter, I believe. Um, or as uh, one, I can't remember what publication in New York, uh, he was assassinated. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There had been a big, 
there had been a big effort to, I mean, what I was basically writing about was the big argument that unfolded the summer before he died about what to do about him, whether there was a big camp of, uh, you know, pro-pedals partisans who believed that he needed to be brought in from the wild and sent to a rehab facility and yeah. live out his days. And deeper background is that when we talk about how many is enough, uh, New Jersey had very successfully... This is me talking now. New Jersey had very successfully recovered the black bear. Absolutely. To the point where the state fish and game agency felt that in execution of their mandate about allowing democratic access to renewable resources, felt that the species had been recovered enough that it was warranted to allow hunting for a couple reasons. One, because there was a, a, a harvestable surplus of the animals. And two, that they had hit a point where they felt that they could not have any more or in somewhere needed the lower populations to limit their spread into higher conflict areas. So this is a determination they made and they allowed a, and they came up with a quota system and started a bear season. And I think petals people knew what this might mean for petals. Oh yeah. And I think petals people all along, I mean that, that decision to reinstate the bear hunt did not go down well among a huge share of the population in New Jersey. Yeah. So I think a lot of the, the feeling for petals was already triggering, you know, triggered by a lot of upset over the fact that bears are being hunted. Petals became a proxy. Yeah. It's always a proxy, isn't it? Because people can't, because pe- not people, a lot of people can't think species level. Yes. They can only think individual level. I think that's exactly right. And even when comprehending their own species, I find that a lot of people do not think species level. When I hear that a plane went down, and then I see that that plane went down in Belarus, I'm like, oh, (laughs) glad it wasn't America, right? Or if a plane went down in America, I quickly like run in my head, would that be a flight that people I know would be on? I wouldn't know anyone on that plane. So we do. We have a difficult time with species-level thinking. Absolutely. We focus on the known and finite. Well, especially or, when you give the animal a name and it becomes an internet celebrity and yeah, so go on, what, special so, in some way. So, yeah, follow us through on Pebbles. Well, so in the, you know, as Pebbles rises to fame. Why do you call them Pebbles? I don't know. Is that you a, pedaled along, right? Yeah, that was, that was the thing. That was the, yeah, that's the joke. You're stepping on the joke here. <laughs> Pebbles is the uh, Flintstone girl, isn't it? No, no, Pedals, because he like, would pedal along. Yeah, that? he's got he a wheel. He's moving. Uh, so, yeah, so there was, a, there was a lot of talk about what to do about Pedals and a lot of anger that among you know, this one side of the debate that the state was not helping Pedals, that the compassionate thing to do would be to bring Pedals out of the wild you know, and let him live in captivity. And, and when I say captivity, I mean, you know, at a, some sort of sanctuary, not yeah. in a cage. Or and what was the state's attitude toward this? The state's attitude was this bear has adapted to its condition, seems to be doing well. It's doing all the things a bear needs to do to survive. The compassionate thing to do is to let the bear be wild. And that's what intrigued me, is that fundamental predicament where both sides had the same exact facts. And both wanted to do the compassionate thing and had completely different ideas about how to how to do it. And then he was then he was killed. 
So the debate was over. You didn't have any chance to talk to the guy that got it, did you? No. So the no one that's not public information uh, because there were some rumors about various people who you know, were the hunter who took pedals down, and those people received death threats. And so I think one actually sued some people for defamation after that. For outing his name or yeah. suggesting that he was the... Yeah, I don't know what, what ended up with that. But yeah, so it was very tense. And I do wonder about the guy <laughs> that <laughs> got it. I'd like to imagine that he was not... I, I hope that he was just not aware. Yeah. Well, and that's the question I asked in the pieces. We don't know if... So Pedals did not only stand on two... I mean, he, he did walk around on all fours like regular bear at times. So it's possible, you know, that whoever killed Petals... Caught him on all fours. Caught him on all fours. Had no way of knowing that was a different bear. On the, other, on the other hand, if the bear was upright, then the very thing that made Petals such a survivor ultimately probably drew attention to him, caused his death, which I think is a sad irony. Yeah. And I imagine New Jersey's a state where you have to report your harvest immediately upon kill check station and they knew the minute it pulled up i read that once pedals showed up they're like oh god no way because someone shot markings on yeah. it well so, someone pods. shot pedals am i still saying, oh, oh, I still oh, saying oh, pedals? what was the nature of the deformity <laughs> well i believe i could have this wrong i believe he was missing one paw and the other was either uh it was sort of bent inward so it was kind of useless okay um this is really so some sort of accident. Yeah, and, and I should stipulate here that the state to this day does not um, confirm that Petals uh, was the bear that was brought to the check station. They will just say that it fit Petals' description because they had never tagged Petals, yeah. and so they don't like to identify mm. the bear. Um, so I don't know if that's significant in any way. I thought it was sort of interesting that there's a sort of Schrodinger's bear aspect to it, you know, that yes. even, even that is uncertain, you know, technically. Th- th- that's where it always makes me cringe. We have a running joke about like New Jersey cat ladies, but it always makes me cringe when people who I feel like aren't equipped to begin talking about wildlife when they enter wildlife conversations. Like they haven't really earned their place at the table in my in my opinion, in my estimation. They haven't earned their place at the table. And I don't think that a position at the table is reliant on the fact that you're pro-extraction of wildlife resources or pro-use. I feel like you can have a place at the table and be ardently anti-hunting or anti-use of renewable resources. It's like, sure, I, I, I welcome those conversations. But oftentimes there's little things will happen that all of a sudden just invite people who are um, ill-prepared, not up to speed to like get in on it. And that was one of those cases where all of a sudden just everyone kind of became a bear expert for a minute. And you saw a similar thing happen. There was no poster child for it, but like, did you write about or follow? And, and like, you know, you, I want to ask you about hunting the deer in your yard, but, um, did, did you follow the Florida bear hunt when Florida went through a similar thing and initiated a bear hunt? Vaguely, yeah, yeah. They, set a, they, they had a population estimate of bears in Florida um, that is just based on modeling, so it's a soft number. 
They set a quota for their bear season. They opened the season up. I think it was in two days. They were getting close to this. In two days, they got close enough to their quota, their mortality quota, that they shut the season down. Because were they to run it a whole other day, they felt they might go over the quota. So they shut it off before they hit their mortality cap. Some of the world looks, some of the country looks at this and says, wow, Florida did a great job with bears. It almost seems like their model was low and they have more bears than they thought they had. They planned out this hunt and had all the measures put in place to make sure that they didn't surpass their mortality quota, had the restraint and conservative management strategy to shut down before reaching their quota. What a successful launch of a bear hunt. Hooray for Florida. Or as some, um, as one, I can't, another New York, uh, online news magazine I can't remember the name of put it at Florida executes 280 bears like or there's that version you know and the fact that these two versions can just exist together out there it, it just like it befuddles me but I think it's this kind of conversation we're having in general now about the the polarized nature of america yeah i mean i was gonna say this kind of partisan deadlock that everything is about now the wildlife people this is like the most familiar thing in the world right that like i was saying before two sides can have the exact same information see the situation completely differently and not want to budge that's the story of wildlife but also in the case that in this case kind of sort of want the same thing if you went to him and said, do you want to have a stable, well-managed population of bears in Florida? I feel that most people would be like, yep. But then the next question would reveal all those differences. You know? Well, because it uh, comes down <laughs> to killing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if you are against hunting an animal... I don't see how you can argue your way into feeling good about it. Yeah. You know, if it's morally reprehensible to you. Now I want to get personal with you, if you don't mind. Sure. You like we? I've been at your home and we uh, looked at the deer and talked about the deer out in your home. Like, how is it? Uh, what is sort of your thing? Like, if you imagine, just like as a writer or whatever, if you imagine, like, like you eat some meat, not a ton of it, but you eat some, or what? Would you, yeah. Yeah. And you'll eat deer meat. Sure. What do you think about, and I, I'm honestly curious about this, because I, I, like, like I said, you, you, in my mind, you very much earned your seat at the table. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> like, in my, like, what do you think when you imagine, that, when you imagine yourself like, like shooting a deer to eat? Like, what are sort of the, the pros and cons that run through your head? Or the, like, the emotional wrestling or whatever it is that happens in your head? I have many times imagined myself shooting a deer that walked through my property. Maybe not with a gun, maybe more with a bow. Okay. Uh, for, for aesthetic reasons or? Uh, for uh, earthquake preparedness in an earthquake, sort of a post-earthquake Oh, no, I mean the gun, versus, I want to do the oh, gun versus bow. Uh, just because it wouldn't be plausible. I'm not sure why. You just picture it with a bow. Yeah, I guess I just 
I don't picture know. it suffering a little longer. I guess longer I have before. some discomfort around guns. Yeah, that it would suffer a little longer before it died. Uh, yeah, but I would suffer less. <laughs> I don't know. I guess I haven't thought of it. I haven't thought of it. That's I'm a joking. good case. I'm Maybe joking. I should start thinking about it. Yeah. Well, I guess because I don't have a gun, but my daughter has a bow. <laughs> so I can shoot it Sounds with a like kid's bow. It gives you a way to start picturing it. Yeah. Okay. So yeah. you picture Well, I've being- also pictured, I mean, this is cr- way crueler, but like, so I'm writing a book about an earthquake right now. So I constantly am looking at the world around me thinking about if there were an earthquake. You're right, hyper that alert. Second. Yeah. It's just sort of running in the background all the time. And I have, so that has made me, and also on Bainbridge, you live to- on an island. you're told to be prepared for, I think, two weeks because the idea is that there's a bridge that connects the island to the peninsula that may or may not survive an earthquake and that the ferry service may not run. And so, you know, supplies and whatnot will have a difficult yeah, time. Yeah, because when, when it hits, they imagine a mass tsunami. Well, I don't, that's something I need to research because I've been, I haven't looked into that myself, but. I don't know that Bainbridge is necessarily at risk of a tsunami. No, but the ferry boats. Oh, yes. Well, yeah. Uh, so I have actually thought, and this was a, a while ago, but I do remember thinking, like looking around and being like, it happens right now. What do I do? How, do, how does my family eat? You know, I mean, we have an earthquake kit, but it's probably not good for two weeks. And I thought we have a garden, right, with a fence around it. And I thought... This is how far I was going. I'm not necessarily proud of this, but I thought, is there a way to lure a deer into the garden, lock the gate, and then it's just hand-to-hand? Yeah. <laughs> right? No bows, no nothing. <laughs> well, then, well, I didn't have any. You know, I don't have any. I have an axe, right? But like that, that would be the first step, maybe, right? So this is my experience with hunting so far. <laughs> is that this is the level the sort of fantasy fantasy makes it sound good. It's yeah. I took no pleasure in it. But you realize but, that that's not the axe is not a legal method of take. Well, I but do you're, not you're think you're the like game post, you're post apocalyptic now. I'm post earthquake. I'm going to say it's yeah. apocalyptic. But yeah. So that's I've just emptied all of my thoughts regarding killing deer. That's all I've thought about. That's the extent of it. You're so, going to make me think about it more now. Yeah, well, because okay. I'm a little bit curious. Just only because I sat there and talked and looked at the deer trails cutting through your yard with you. And like I said, I just want to like find where you are. So you would never, like you, 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 and, and I, I'm definitely not trying to, I, I'm not trying to like, like unveil or, or reveal some sort of inherent hypocrisy or whatever, but you will buy flesh. Yeah. So what is it that you, that like, what is it that you don't go like, oh, I'll just shoot these deer and eat them? There's a, bunch, was, there's a bunch of them. I don't think I have, I don't think I'm squeamish about that. Yeah. I don't think I would have a problem hunting. It's just something I, I don't do. Is it it's, just like a lack of interest? I've never been, yeah, I've never been driven to go try. I did go once. You know, I went with a friend of mine, went elk hunting. Yeah, oh, you I, I couldn't fire the gun or anything. We didn't even see any elk that day. But, you know, I, I was curious yeah. to see what it was like. Um, I'm not actually anti-hunting. You know, I don't have. No, any, I, don't, I don't. I don't have any aversion to it. Uh, I my entire life have gone to a supermarket. I used to be a butcher, right? So I've been on that side of it too. Um, I I'm someone who goes to the store and buys meat. I'm not someone who kills it myself. And I and I don't ha- I don't have to. I mean, that's what it comes down to. Right? Yeah, and there's yeah. a lot of things I could make my own clothing, right? But I it's for the same reason. For I sure. Just, I've never been drawn to do that. I've tried to, I've made that point. It's funny you bring that up about making your own clothing. Cause I've made in, in, when I've been interviewed, I've been asked by people oftentimes like, they're like, so you think that everybody should go out and shoot it, you know, 
that's what you think the only legitimate and I always point out no um there are a lot of things that people used to have to do that I don't do myself like process my own raw sewage stitch my own clothes right I've bowed out of all kinds of stuff and allowed people to step in and handle it for me it just happens to be that that well a handful growing vegetables is very important to me i guess like i've really centered around food ideas like somehow food remains like like being in the driver's seat as much as possible on food remains very important to me i feel the same way i think i just haven't gone as far as you have gone you know it's i think we have the same philosophy it's just i I have not executed it to the degree that you have. To the extent. Yeah. So you don't imagine anytime soon you're going to take up deer hunting? I, don't, I mean, I, 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 I don't want, know. I, I mean, want you, know, you to so badly. Why? Because I want you to write about it. Huh. I mean, I might, that might be the most likely context in which I would go hunting, to be honest. Is yeah. Because I like, we, I like to. Well, maybe they, maybe they will. All right. I want to strongly steer you away from the axe situation. Yeah. <laughs> no, tra- Just the trust trap me. Axe I, was, I was raising the axe line. situation to kind of put my naivete on the table just as a baseline for the rest of the conversation. But you don't do cheesy. Safety. Yeah, you don't do cheesy cold opens, though. <laughs> You're not like, I, I sharp, the sharpened axe was raised over my head. No. If I was driven <laughs> to kill an axe in my garden, inside my garden fence... Uh, kill a deer inside my garden fence with an axe after an earthquake, I would probably write about it. That seems like a remarkable experience Yes, that should be documented somewhere. Yeah, but if, I hope it doesn't come to that. If it came to that, you would later, when, when tapping into the old well, right. you, would, <laughs> you would stumble upon that story. Eventually. Yeah. yeah. All right. Last thing. Do you guys got... I want, last thing I want to talk about the new book. But, but um, we'll talk about that. Then you can ask your final questions. Are you guys good to move on to the new book? Yes. Yeah. To what degree are you comfortable talking about your new book? Oh, I'm comfortable with it. Well, because here's the thing. A lot of the people who listen to this show have an intense interest in Alaska. Right. Because they come at it from a hunting and fishing perspective. And that's like, you know, well known for that kind of stuff. I don't know if you're aware. Oh, I'm pretty aware. Right. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of people killing deers with axes up there. <laughs> that's what I've heard. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, yeah. Talk about, talk about the book. Yeah. You're well, about. my book has everything to do with Alaska and almost nothing to do with hunting and fishing, but. Um, this was actually grew out of a project I did, uh, for a podcast called 99% Invisible, which, um, you know, anyone listening to this who wants to go check that out would, would get a lot better understanding of it. Um, can you also do, talk about the, the shows you do with the, yeah. So this was a project I did with a, a bunch of musicians who are, um, in the, a band called the Decemberists. So it was, uh, ev- you know, everyone, but one member of the Decemberists, uh, used to be in this, uh, other band. And who I've done some collaborations with over the years. Um, it's sort of tricky now because they don't exactly have a name anymore, but they used to be called Black Prairie. So we, uh, we basically do these projects where, um, I tell a story and they write a score to the story, um, and often songs, uh, sort of based on character. They did a soundtrack for Wild Ones where they wrote songs about different Hornaday. people in the book. They wrote a song about <laughs> Hornaday. Yeah. Um, it sounds a little weird, but it, it works out all right. And so in this uh, last project uh, we did for 99% Invisible, it's called This Is Chance, which is probably going to be the name of the book as well. Um, and it was about the 1964 earthquake uh, 
in Alaska. Uh, mostly, mostly I'm dealing with Anchorage. Uh, and I'm just basically telling the story of the first three or four days after the earthquake. Um, and thankfully I found just a tremendous amount of archival material that's letting me do that in a really intimate um, detail-oriented way. Can you talk about just how big and bad that earthquake was? So it was a 9.2 earthquake. Uh, it was uh, it was so big that <laughs> uh, it's hard. It's hard. It's like the sequoias. Filled it with water. It's hard. Yeah, it's hard. It's a really. It is like the sequoias in the sense that it's your mind cannot accept. You know, sort of, it, it has no way to intuit the size. But yeah, well, the, like, the Richter scale scale ends at ten. Well, the Richter scale is exponential. Oh, it is. So, so a nine uh, is ten times worse than the eight. Yeah. Does it end at 10? Uh, I don't know. Actually. How can there be an end? Right. Well, that's, yeah, I don't know. Because well, you just know how bad the earth can get bound right. up. Yeah. I mean, this is a, you know, some of what I, what I find really interesting about um, this, and it may be true of all earthquakes, but the, the degree to which the damage was sort of freakishly random, you know, I mean, it wasn't random. It had everything to do with the underlying geology and whatnot, but just looking at pictures of the damage, you know, you have on 4th Avenue, which is sort of the main drag of Anchorage, you had a, one side of the street, which for two and a half, three blocks, sank about 20, 30 feet just in place where, you know, the, all the buildings were still mostly intact. You had cars parked next to the parking meters just 20 feet below. You had guys coming out of bars, you know, just looking up, trying to figure out how they're going to get out. The other side of the street, totally fine, you know. And uh, Yeah, I was telling John today that my brother hunts ducks in a marsh that used to be farmland, but it just instantly shot downward and became underwater yeah there was an entire little town called portage we were saying earlier that is the same same scenario um yeah so so this the the magnitude and the destruction from this quake were pretty catastrophic and yet the death toll was was uh, miraculously small i think there was 111 people um around alaska and that included that may or may not have included a handful of people that died um, from tsunamis uh, down in the lower 48 as well. Um, partially because there just wasn't the population density in, in Alaska or even in Anchorage at that time. But it happened on Good Friday. Uh, so what I'm writing about is the story is mostly focused around a radio station in Anchorage uh, called KENI. Uh, which was sort of like the community radio station. You know, they were the people around town. Everyone knew the the broadcasters. And there was a woman who worked part-time at the station named Jeannie Chance, who, for a variety of reasons, wound up um, sort of being recognized as the voice that carried um, a lot of Alaska through that quake. And it was her voice that, um, just solely by coincidence, wound up being uh, played all over the world, um, both her giving reports to stations all over the world, but also just recordings of her that people were picked up uh, outside of Anchorage on the station just doing local announcements about, you know, people, you know, so-and-so, your brother is at this place, he's fine. I'm just kind of reconnecting the community. Uh, so I'm following her story, and she just turned out to be a, a totally fascinating character both before and after the quake, and then a couple of other people uh, around Anchorage at that time taking them through these, these first few days uh, just of that Good Friday, Easter weekend. When did she die? She died in the 90s. She actually went on to be um, a state legislature, a legislator in Alaska for a few years and had a pretty distinguished career and um, you know, was really remembered as a, you know, really fondly by people there. For, you know, she was real big on kind of feminist issues at a time when that was not necessarily oh, really? something that was real popular um, and did a lot of work with... Uh, she had 
uh, you know, been uh, abused by her husband at the time, of, around the time of the earthquake. She was in this kind of, you know, uh, t- tough marriage that way and uh, came out of it and did a lot of work for, um, you know, other women suffering from that as a legislator. And uh, so, yeah, so I'm not necessarily dealing with her later life all that much, although I am, I am looking into it. But uh, uh, yeah, I think there's just something that really captivated me about the unpredictability, you know, the way that, that lay, a situation like that lays bare, just how chaotic the earth is and you know just i want to say metaphorically but not really even metaphorically just literally just the uncertainty that we all kind of have to live with yeah and then what do you do when when that cleaves your world right open and all these things that you thought you you know you took for granted just the way things were just aren't true anymore which uh you know more and more seems like a condition where <laughs> a lot of us are living with too so uh yeah what was her name again genie chance what jumped in my mind when you're talking about that as the woman who when Folsom, New Mexico was destroyed by a flash flood, there was a woman working a switchboard trying to alert everyone and stayed at the post and was killed. Huh. Yeah. Like I mean, that, sacrificed herself to the... That's an interesting thing. You know, when I, I... It didn't take long after I started doing just the basic research for this book that I realized that as remarkable as her story was and what she did was... There were lots of other people, even just around Anchorage, you know, ham radio operators who stayed up for 36 hours just relaying messages to the South 48. All sorts of people were doing miraculous things. This is what I was telling you before, is that just so happened that this uh, sociology research institute had been set up at Ohio State a few months before the earthquake. And their whole thing was they were going to study the way people behaved in natural disasters in the aftermath. And they were bankrolled by the military. The military thought this was a like a, la- a natural laboratory in which to study nuclear war. What was going to happen? What was pandemonium was going to unfold after a nuclear strike? And how are we going to, uh, you know, g- control it or minimize it? And it turned out that these sociologists who came to Alaska, this was their first big chance to study a real disaster, and they did hundreds of interviews around town, documented everything, and I, you know, have access to their materials. Is a big way I'm telling this story. You know, they started to look around. And they realized it's not at all what you know, the military thinks it's going to be. It's, it is a lot of people acting very heroically, calmly, rationally, collaboratively. Um, and that's the way these aftermaths tend to play out. You know, sometimes there's mismanagement by authorities. You know, looting turns out to be mostly just a myth. Um, although as soon as anything looks like looting, it gets widely reported because, you know, the, the fear of looting is, is very high. Yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah, they just kind of, that was the beginning, that Alaska study was really the beginning of like a half century of social science, just debunking a lot of these very pessimistic myths about human nature. That stuff persists because I think there's still this thing when people who are into disaster preparedness, like when I imagine my own, because I live in a seismically active area, when I imagine my own disaster preparedness, I like to think that there's some room in my mind for um, ways in which I would assist my neighbors. But a lot of guys start thinking about disaster preparedness, and they're out shopping for a gun with which they will use to kill their neighbors. I feel like there's like two mentalities at play, yeah. <laughs> at play there. Yeah, know? and even though we see it again and again, you know, it's like it's funny because I'm just writing about about this uh, a little bit, and and. Uh, even like this year and all the disasters we've had this year. And there've been so many great stories about, you know, just ordinary local people helping each other, but it's always framed as this very surprising thing. You know, it's just this who we are in Houston, you know, like we help one another, but actually, you know, everyone it's who everyone is. Right. Um, and so there's this weird mix of, we just can't quite accept, uh, you know, that maybe the, the goodness is not so special, you know, yeah. that it's this, it should be very reassuring, but it just feels deflating. Sometimes. I think it takes a few 
it takes a few days of feeling abandoned to start bringing out the bad. Yeah, it may be. I don't know. I don't kinda, if you just look at like natural disasters, it's oftentimes it's not a imme- people aren't immediately like, well, let's run out and cause mayhem. It's sort of like, man, we've been completely let down. Yeah. And then tensions. Well, what they say is, I guess my understanding of the research, and I don't know it in and out, but I definitely don't know it. What? So. The, what the, <laughs> I guess so there's there's a shift that happens when you know in a in a natural disaster, everyone's suffering together. So everyone has the same, we're all, you know, all, everyone's afflicted by the same thing. And then when you can stop feeling collectively, you know, joined by your suffering from that disaster and start pointing fingers at, you know, whoever is, has botched the recovery to the disaster, yeah. that's when the, when the trouble starts to, you know, or at least the, the ill will, I think, starts to rise up. I don't, you know, that's my sense from reading what I've read so far. No, I fear for people finding out about my giant rain barrel and just how much mountain house I have stashed around. And they're going to come for it. Matt shouldn't have just let it out. Just let the cat out of the bag right there. <laughs> so, uh, Cal, do you have any concluders? Any final um, things, questions for our, our guest, John Muallam? Oh, man. His work can be found at any number of uh, places online and in his book, uh, I guess Wild Ones. I should say thanks, um, Wild Ones. I admit I am not, not uh, through it, but it's been great. Thank and. You. I'd, yeah, a couple of little uh, twists and additions to some of the stories in there, just in a way that I wasn't thinking, and and have really enjoyed it. Um, yeah, man, I'd, 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 what is what is your response to those people who's like, oh, well, how much is too much? Like, when when do you, John, say, yeah, you got to pull the plug on that sea turtle? I wish it, I was that organized to have a, <laughs> a rubric <laughs> to make these decisions. Yeah, I, I mean, I'm just you know going clumsily on my way like everyone else. I think. Or is it better to go to uh, Steve's fourteen thousand years ago? You're the you're the first man to that lake. What if what if you you're on your pristine lake and there is not a panfish to be found? It's full of. You know, northern there probably Pike wasn't even a lake there. Fourteen thousand. I wonder. Years ago. That's why I'd like to go visit. <laughs> that's why I'd like to go visit. It's an unrealistic. It's an unrealistic goal. But if I, it's just where I've decided to fall. And how tempted would you be? It's to acad- add but it's academic. It. It's like academic too. You know, it's like yeah. it's not like I'm like thinking will arrive there, but just a way that I, it's it's how I begin to understand things. It's a way yeah. I like strive to understand things. That was the that was like that was day yeah. one, that was day one, and then this and, is as good as it and, gets. And as best as I can understand what happened on day one through day, well, I don't know what day we'd be on now in the hundreds of thousands. As the best as how we'd get there. It's actually pronounced bison. Okay, bison, bison, bison is how it's pronounced. <laughs> Try it's trinomial nomenclature. Would be bison, bison, bison. Yanni. Um. Yeah, it's a good book. I think if you guys, if you like listening to this show, you'd, you'll probably like reading the book. I feel like a lot of the things that, and I was surprised by it because I really didn't know what to expect. That you know, I just kind of got it, you know, thinking I better read it because we're going to talk to John. And uh, it, it's like a lot of the, a lot of the concepts that you've brought up to me just over the last few years, John sort of brings up in that book. And then talks about them in just a different way than you and I talk about them. So it, it's 
it's been eye opening for me. I really, I've, I've, I've really enjoyed it. I mean, I could ask all kinds of questions, you know, to get deeper about what I learned in that book so far. But I don't know if I really have any follow up. Um, no, but I think if your if your whole understanding, like mine, like my understanding of wildlife, is inspired, has been inspired by, and is kind of based around, right, like a hunting and fishing perspective. Yeah. So it's useful. Um, it's useful to go. To, to go read people read about wildlife from from a different perspective now and then because they just notice things completely different it's good that's what i mean that's not that's kind of why i would sell it to our that's kind of why i would sell it to the type of guy that's listening to this type of lady that's listening yeah. to this yeah expand outward a little bit yeah totally ain't all about turkeys <laughs> How good turkeys are doing right now. Anything else, Jan? No, I think that's all I got. John, do you have any final concluding thoughts? If there's anything you want to just wedge in, you couldn't find a way to wedge it in, but you're like, man, the one thing I got to make sure to talk about is blank, and you never got a chance, now's your chance. I don't think, I mean, I would just say, like, you're asking me, how do you make those decisions? I'm not really interested in making those decisions, you know, but I think that there's value in trying to acknowledge how complex a lot of these questions are and how complex your own, like you're saying, well, this is my baseline, but what, how can I really defend that? I think the more people do that, the easier it is to deal with this kind of you know, partisan gridlock we find ourselves in in a lot of stuff because you won't feel so violated by whatever decision is made you know, if you can understand that it's happening in this kind of climate of great complexity. Mm-hmm. You know, it gives you some sympathy. Uh, you know, if you think that your thing is absolutely right and there's easy ways to think about all this, then when it, the decision doesn't meet your criteria, it's going to feel a lot worse. That's um, funny you bring that up because I really, there's a handful of things that I remind myself about every day. And one of the things I remind myself about every day is not becoming one of those people who has this sort of attitude like, oh my God. What will they think of next? <laughs> Yesterday it was this, and now it's that. Like to be like that type of guy scares me. I think it gets harder too. Right? It's just As when so you get older, easy. I think it, it's yeah. so easy to become a guy like that. That I like. I like. I'm always like, hey, don't get divorced. Don't get divorced today, and don't become a guy <laughs> who's like, oh my god, what next? They're probably related. <laughs> I think those yes. are related goals. <laughs> Yeah, they work it. Yeah, your efforts on each of those work in tandem. Yeah. <laughs> All right, John Muell, thanks for joining us. Tell us again, because uh, Wild Ones, but give us the great subtitle because I'll mess it up. Wild Ones, a sometimes dismaying, weirdly reassuring story about looking at people, looking at animals in America. And all kinds of writings. Um, you write primarily for New York Times Magazine. Yeah. Not the newspaper, but the magazine, which are which are brothers walking hand in hand. Yes. And then um, in your forthcoming book, like you're not done with it, and then it takes them a year to do it. And yeah, it's a ways out. I mean, I just started writing it. So this is a long-range teaser. Yeah, I'm deep in the dark tunnel. Of- but in the future, in future uh, Christmas times, a Christmas time or two from now, when you're like, what do I get my brother or my sister or whatever? Um, get them this as yet unnamed book. Yeah, put it on your calendar now. <laughs> your calendar shopping <laughs> Two years list. from now. All right, John, thanks again. Thank you, guys.
Hey guys, turkey season is in full swing right now, and if you are planning on getting after it, make sure to pick up some Meat Eater Phelps turkey calls to stuff into the old turkey vest or into your fanny pack right now. I carry a few different things. I like to use mouth calls, and I like to use pot calls. Mouth calls or diaphragms, I like them because it gives you hand-free calling, meaning when you're working a bird up close, you can have your gun on your knee, finger on the trigger, ready to roll, and still be making turkey sounds. I like pot calls. I just like pot calls. I enjoy calling with a pot call. Whatever direction you go, including a box call, which I don't personally use too much, but they're fun and great, and I started out with them. Yanni, on the other hand, one of my main turkey hunting buddies, he loves box calls. And what's funny is I'll now and then look to him and give him the look that means get out your box call and find us a turkey. So it's not that I don't like him. I just have Yanni use his. Then I don't have to carry it. Go to Phelps Game Calls. Get calls that are made in the USA and get calls that'll get them close. Find yours at phelpsgamecalls.com today.